the business world has been turned on its head really over the last uh, 18 months with uh, COVID and Brexit. And I'm really interested to see what business 2.0 is going to look like, um, how people react and what the world will be like in this uh, post-business world. Um, why am I qualified to ask the questions, you might ask? Well, I am a businessman, uh, an entrepreneur, an investor. I've uh, started more than 30 companies. Um, I've floated businesses on the stock market, sold them for 10 times the float price in one time. I've led hostile bids. Um, and I'm really interested in the kind of world of, of how people uh, tick, really. Um, so I'm asking six people with very different, disparate backgrounds, the same 10 questions to see what they think um, the future is, is going to be like for the people of Britain um, and the businesses that, that operate there. My guest uh, today is uh, Tasneem Aliwi. Uh, welcome, Tasneem. Thank you. Um, Tasneem is a very interesting lady uh, in that she is a Palestinian woman mm -hmm. who was uh, brought up and grew up in the north of England. Mm -hmm. uh, she started a career in law, but her passion now, she switched to technology, uh, and I've seen her at work. Um, her passion now is really making sure that there's a level playing field and equality of opportunities uh, for people in Britain um, at all levels. Uh, I've seen her challenge the toximity, really, of the way people are interviewing, um, the unconscious bias, the toxicity of, of unconscious bias. I've seen her passionate about diversity and inclusion, uh, making sure that people uh, in big and medium organisations get this kind of equality of opportunity um, that, they're, that they're seeking. Um, so let's kick off. Welcome, Tasneem. Thank you very much. And let's ask you the same 10 questions. So what opportunities and, and threats do you think that there are in the sectors that you uh, operate in? Well, um, it's a very it's a very different space at the moment. Obviously, following um, COVID in particular, um, I think the opportunities actually, and just if I was to bring it kind of more around the diversity and inclusion, um, I think the the new world post-COVID in terms of working from home, in terms of the flexibility around working. I think it creates opportunities for people who perhaps couldn't do kind of the fixed hours, Monday to Friday, um, in office work or in corporate environments. And so that allows them to have the flexibility and to be able to take, you know, take charge really of um, their own work life and, and their balance. And you think that's a good thing? I think We've that's a great that thing because, um, so personally for me, I, I love working in the office, but I, for example, don't have any children. I live quite locally to the office. Um, it's easier for So them, it's right? easier for me. Um, but I, I just often think about perhaps people who have certain disabilities or certain things where, um, you know, or perhaps they have children or they're a single mum. Or... Do you know that I worry about that because it seems a great utopia, but when mm -hmm. you scratch under the surface, I wonder whether the people that are more likely to stay at home 
them. Let's take the strides that we've met mm -hmm. on uh, equality of, of pay, gender pay, yep. for example. I'm slightly concerned that if the demographic of people that stay at home, if, uh, let's just say, if women are more caring and have got children to look after, mm -hmm. they're more likely to work from home than work from the office. I'm slightly concerned that might be a step back for us because this kind of out of sight, out of mind thing, if you're not in somebody's face mm -hmm. in the office, you might not be considered for promotions or special projects. Absolutely. Do you, do you, are you concerned about that? Do you worry about that? I am concerned about that. Um, what I would say is I'm I'm a big advocate in terms of not just the kind of, oh, work from home or work remotely straight away, but it's more kind of the, we need to change the way now that we know that it works, that you don't just have to do kind of the in the office all the time, nine to five kind of mindset. Um, I, I see opportunities in which people can take charge of their um, work schedule. So it's about coming into the office, but if they need that childcare in the morning, then they would just come into the office afterwards and so on. I think that's, in my mind, that's what flexibility is. I think the onus is on businesses to make sure they consider all these factors and actually come up with an environment that is more inclusive. Yeah. Um, but I think previously it hasn't been um, prioritised. People always talked about diversity and inclusion, but they always talked about it in a, it would be a nice to have. The paying lip service yeah, to it exactly. rather than being involved 100%. In it. And that's always been my pet peeve about DNI. But look, but if you, if you look at Britain now, we're outside of the EU. You know, we're, we're standing alone in a, in a strong way. Um, how do you think our relationship with the rest of the world? We have to compete with the rest of the world, don't we? Our cost base has to be similar or competitive with the rest of the world. How do you think our, our trading relationship with the rest of the rest of the world might alter? Um, I'm not an economist or an expert, so I can't um, I can't kind of comment on the specifics of the the trading um, relationships. Um, the one thing I would say is um, personally. I, the way I felt about Brexit was, um, it sh for me, it should have never kind of been a referendum because it's so complex and it's hard for the average person that's not working in an economist role to actually understand kind of the, you know, the parameters around trading relationships and so on. I think, I think the challenge is that you need to be competitive, and I think it's also about coming up with trading agreements outside of the EU with lots of different countries who already have existing trading relationships. So, I see that as a challenge. I think, as well, it's if I was to kind of maybe take the question away slightly from kind of what the trading relationships are like. I think the biggest challenge for me around like Brexit and around kind of is that everybody seems to have an opinion on it and it seems to be very divisive so when you're when you're speaking to people now it's I, f I feel like there's like a divide within Britain already on so it's, what? it's not just religion and politics we shouldn't speak about it's religion politics and Brexit as yes well. exactly and I think that's quite sad because it's it's separating it, it's dividing people um and I think that's one of the one of the negatives for me or the challenges and, and being a spokesman about opportunity and, and I've, I've seen your passion about that and given your heritage you know growing up as a Palestinian woman yeah. how do you see that level playing field you know the, the, the level playing field between different countries and between different cultures are you seeing that evening itself out a little bit more now globally yes because it's a global business environment. Yeah, I mean, isn't it? true. Um, if there are children exploited in one country for, for child labour, it doesn't make it fair to sell their goods for the, for the same prices in, in the West. No, absolutely. I think there's a lot of conversations that are being had about this at the moment. I don't think we're... Um, I don't think the progress has been made. I still think as well, um, globally, you've got... Um, 
you've got still like a divide between kind of like the West and the non-Western countries. And so we always look at it like the Western countries are kind of like, you know, the the model, the role models to kind of like follow through. I think um, personally, and like from my own experience as well, like speaking about this is I think we're not at the plain level field yet. Um, I think we're getting there. Um, without getting too much into politics, there's been lots of conversations now. I think especially as well, the younger generation is much more involved in the conversations around, um, you know, political awareness, climate, you know, the the divide as well between the, the wealth divide um, and also kind of all forms of oppression as well. So it's happening, but it's not happening quick enough. It might take half a generation for those people I to think get into so. power where they can make 100%, decisions yeah. on behalf of the rest of us. Um, that leads on to the next question, question three, which is really uh, the sort of post-pandemic thoughts. What, what ongoing, we've already talked about homeworking, but what ongoing trends do you think will emerge from from this experience or will we go back to the way we were what what's here to stay do you think it's an interesting question because i think if you asked me that six months ago it would have been like no one's going back into the office everyone's going to be working from home um but i think um companies have realized just the 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 value and kind of being in the office like you mentioned before and kind of meeting in person and so on um and the opportunities and the facetime you get with people at at the top right so i think it really depends on how companies now approach this i think what concerns me is that not enough a lot of companies are talking about strategy in terms of office capacity and in terms of um you know in in terms of who's going to go into the office first etc but i don't think there's that you know in-depth kind of like strategic thinking around what do we need to do in order to make sure that this is an environment in which that we're going to stay and I think in people that are going to stay and thrive and I think that's where perhaps bigger companies and big corporations run the risk of actually leaving themselves behind because I think there are much more kind of progressive because they can't change quickly enough they can't change quickly enough but I think it's a mindset thing rather than implementing the changes so it's kind of like okay well we're going to roll everybody back into the office without having to think in terms of well how how much of our kind of employee population comes from diverse backgrounds what challenges do they face what do we need in order to make sure that they progress their careers through I don't think there's that thought processes or those questions that are being raised at the moment um so I think they will probably miss out because of that I think also there is a mindset I think and I think it was accelerated by accelerated by the pandemic um a lot of the what I've seen personally just from being in a people business is that especially the younger people um you know, they're not just asking about, they are asking about salaries and it is important, but they're also asking about things like, you know, diversity and, and inclusion and what the culture is like. Those are, when I'm hiring for someone, those are one of the first questions. Well, it's interesting to say that, Tessie. In some of the circles that I move in, uh, some of the old crocs are still using diversity as a kind of tick box exercise. Mm. You know, do I get my bonus if I get the right ratio of people? And I'm really kind of anti quotas. I think quotas bend things out of shape horribly. But I think there are another generation of people that are going, actually, Actually, do you know what? If we if we have diversity of thought mm-hmm. in the decision making of our board, actually we're going to be a, a better company. Actually, our products and service offerings are going to be more appropriate for, for the people that we're selling them to. So actually, we're desperate to get this. Yeah. So the seesaw, you know, tips over quite quickly from uh, this is just a boring boxing exercise to actually this is a this is a competitive advantage, yeah. and that's the way we're going to got to get it right. Yeah, one hundred percent. 
Okay. Well, coming on to the sort of wake of the last 18 months, who's going to pay this uh, £400 billion bill? I think we're up to about £400 billion bill. And and the kind of ongoing uh, NHS uh, requirement. You know, we seem to be cheering our our nurses one minute and then, uh, you know, refusing to give them pay rises um, the the next. What what do you think the consequences for for business taxes? I mean, we've already seen recently, haven't we, in this last week, this uh, tax rise Mm-hmm. On national insurance, yes, to pay partly for the NHS. Exactly, and um, it's it's quite frustrating from my point of view. Um, I think because um, if you look at people who have been, you know, taxed national insurance and who affects affects average, not like you know, people who aren't particularly kind of the wealthiest in the country, um, they're just people who are kind of working day to day, and um, I think more taxes on that is just gonna. I don't think it's fair. I think um, especially the pandemic um, has shown us the massive wealth divide in this country specifically. Um, So I do think it's more on businesses and more on kind of the millionaires and billionaires to be paying their taxes and not finding legal loopholes to get out of them. Um, I think that's who should have um, perhaps picked up the bill rather than raising national insurance tax. Um, it is one of those tough subjects because I think everybody has, um, you know, very strong opinions on this. Um, but I think I, I can't I can't possibly think about who picks up the bill versus like who benefited most from the pandemic and who suffered the most. And I think the wealth the wealthier you are on the spectrum, like if you look at Bezos, for example, with Amazon, I mean, his his profits rocketed during the pandemic and a lot of people who paid the price of the pandemic were people from marginalized communities because they didn't have the um, option to work from home um, a lot of them didn't um, they didn't have the option of you know social distancing a lot of them were kind of living with lots of people and, and so on so um, yeah I, I think I mean, firstly, I think the NHS has done an amazing job. I've got a lot of friends who work in the NHS and, and you know, the amount of mental health and, and mental toll that's taken on them to, to fight this pandemic has been huge. Um, but I do think that the responsibility is less so on people who are paying kind of national insurance tags and people who are... And big business um, should pay their, yeah. pay their way more. Uh, I, I agree yeah. with you entirely. Let, let's look at the, the government's uh, relationship, though, with, uh, with business. Um, there's a lot of debate in the press at the moment about whether uh, we should make vaccines mandatory mm-hmm. for people that work in in care homes of the nhs and there's this kind of whole thing about you know libertarian versus the kind of nanny state dictating mm-hmm. what we should do i'm going to an event uh, later this evening which is an outdoor event yet i've got to show you know two vaccinations pcr tests same as when we went to ascot um where do you where do you sit against kind of control control of the people you know I'm a big fan of um, democracy and people making their own choices. Um, I am vaccinated, so but I, I I did make that choice knowingly that I wanted to have the vaccine. Um, I do think, personally, I do think it's good for everyone to have the vaccine. Um, again, I think I think when you make it mandatory on certain people in certain roles, um, it becomes much more of a you're controlling. Um, a certain group of the population, but then you're leaving the choice to other people. I mean, people... Who- I don't want you to sit on the fence here. I mean, if your mother was in a care home, mm-hmm. would you be happy that there were staff in the care home that hadn't been vaccinated? Or would you... Do you think that they, it should be mandatory? Do you think they should be vaccinated? 
It's a tough question. It is. That's it, what I'm asking. A, yeah, you. it's a really tough question. I'm looking for an because, answer. Um, you know, when you bring the mum into, of course, I want every, my parents to be protected or my close ones. Um, well, that's why it's difficult. It, it is difficult. But then you're talking about kind of personal choice. And I mean, it's not some. I, I think, okay, I, th- I think if it was up to me, and I'm so, I'm so glad that it's not, um, I would maybe take it case by case and try and understand people's mindsets around why they're not taking the vaccine and more of an education you wouldn't make it mandatory necessarily you try and make it by persuasion well i mean it's 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 hard isn't it because if you have a scenario where someone's prone to blood clots for example or has a condition and they're worried about taking that i just wouldn't be comfortable then forcing that person particularly to to want to do that um let, let's let's look. Uh, moving on to the kind of people, the kind of entrepreneurs um, that business leaders will thrive in in the world of tomorrow. You know, we've got this kind of not entirely true history of these kind of people going to Oxford and Cambridge and Eton and the sort of then ending up running businesses and public sector companies. It feels to me it's going to be a different world going forward. But what kind of, of entrepreneurs and, and business leaders are going to thrive in this kind of new world that we're living in and working in now? I think the world has changed so much since COVID and Brexit, but also since um, there's a lot more of like a social movement as well around um, Black Lives Matter, around a lot of oppressions are going on. I think a lot of people in, you know, and I don't want to generalize because some people do get it, but I think a lot of people who are in at the top um, kind of see it as, a, oh, it's just a phase or kind of another thing. But I think it's definitely changing like the the way the world works and the things that people are aware of is very different and I think that's because of many factors as well not just the pandemic and Brexit but I think it's also social media um, the world becoming more democratic people actually owning their own voices and talking about their own oppressions etc um, so I do think that if they don't you know if they don't progress with the times they'll definitely the ones that will will be the ones that do understand, you know, things around um, that diversity is not just a lip service. I mean, I, I do. I'm asking of all my six guests, you're the one closest to seeing this kind of new generation of people bubbling up. Yeah. Um, and which are the ones that you're seeing thriving? And, and what kind of qualities are, are you seeing? Uh, people that are really kind of getting on and accelerating their their careers now. I think people who are it's, as cliche as it sounds, people who are leading businesses with like compassion and with in, with integrity and actually focused on. I, I can't think of like specific examples because it's it. It has been mainly kind of like individuals that have... And how do you demonstrate authenticity in this kind of fake world where you can, you know, digitise anything, you can change photos on your Instagram account? How does that authenticity come through? How do you see that authenticity coming through? It's interesting. I, I, ran, um, I ran a workshop for my um, colleagues two days ago about DNI, and I think they were kind of expecting it to be the same kind of like slide with, you know... Um, everything, But I think we touched on things that I think it's about addressing the elephant in the room. Right. So when you're talking about this country or you're talking about America, um, you, you are talking about a lot of um, you're not just talking about diversity from a gender perspective. Um, there needs to be an acknowledgement of 
well, um, white privilege has really kind of gone on for so long, which, I mean, if you, you mentioned the universities, for example, and the schools, and, and that was my point, actually, at the workshop that I ran, it's not so much about saying that we're not going to go and hire people from those universities or people who have gone to those schools. It's just about acknowledging that people who didn't go to these universities and didn't go to the, these schools that then led to to go on to these um, uh, pres- prestigious um, in educational institutions um, haven't had access to the same opportunities and it wasn't based on their performance, it wasn't based on their talent, it was just based on their socioeconomic backgrounds, right? So for me, it's um, it's really important that businesses acknowledge that and, and don't just kind of don't just kind of hide behind unconscious bias, but actually dig deeper into why there's unconscious bias in the first place. And actually understand that a lot of the lack of diversity that we have in organizations is systematic because we we have lived in a world where white privilege is is a you know, it 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 is there. And um, people who've benefited and people who've, you know, had all this wealth are, you know, factually are white and male, especially in these organisations, right? So it is systematic. It might have been not, they haven't made the system, they've just kind of took part in it. Um, but they, they haven't created the system, sorry. But they're still buying into the system in terms of if you look at graduate programs the reason why i'm so passionate about a graduate program is because it looks outside of the two one top 20 university and so on and there's a reason for that um i think the minute that businesses understand that that's not just a tick you know a tick box exercise and it is actually um you know a systematic problem and they start to actually dismantle the very systems that created these kind of disparities um then i think that's when they'll move forward i I agree it's all about coaching and i think you know this unconscious bias comes from fear of the unknown um and familiarity with what you do know um so you know if your best friend's mum was from a certain country and cook certain food and you kind of like that then you're more likely to be unconsciously biased when you're interviewing someone you might like similar things uh, so it's trying to get um, get rid of that fear and un- uncertainty of, of, of the unknown. Uh, Tasmin, we've um, we, we talked earlier about the kind of business uh, working remotely, um, and, and you mentioned that you, you believe that it's that it's here to stay. But but again, digging under the surface, do you think it could be a drag on productivity? How do you get the same productivity out of people that are that are working from home and, and that you know that they're working and not just watching Judge Judy or Cash in the Attic? Um, is it a cost-saving benefit? Our offices might need to be smaller because we've got a you know, percentage of the workforce working from home. So is it a drag on productivity or is it a cost-saving benefit? A bit of both. Um, I think it, I, I think the way to tackle that is making sure that people who are in leadership positions are coached on this because it's we're living in unprecedented times where this has never happened before. And like an a leader or a manager of a team, for example, wouldn't have had to deal with this before. So I think it's it's about communication because I think the one thing that suff- that businesses suffered from working from home is communication. I think that's why I like personally going into the office because it's less formal when you have to go and physically kind of click to call someone on Teams or actually arrange Zoom calls. It's like everyone's in an office and you can just get up and, and say something. I think... Um, I, I I do I do think it's because um, I do think society tends to kind of go to extremes. It's either kind of working from home or now working remotely, and I do think it's about kind of merging the two. Um, I do also think it's very very individual. So for me, I'm not productive 
working from home. I know that I've struggled. I couldn't wait until lockdown was lifted um, because it really took a toll on my mental health in terms of being in that in that space. And and I found myself feeling quite depressed, actually, in the last lockdown during winter, where you just couldn't get out. And even if you wanted to go out, it was too cold and it was dark um, and I didn't have that interaction. So I couldn't wait until I was in an office and office environment. Um, I also do appreciate that my job is much more about client facing and relationships. So I missed that side of things of actually having that in-person interaction. Some people genuinely are very productive at home. And, you know, they, the way they communicate is is different and they prefer to communicate by emails etc i don't think we should necessarily dismiss that i think it should be a conversation with those people anyone that says you know they they want to work from home because they are productive um i think it should be a communication around that of like why do you feel productive is there something we can do in the office is it a case of flexing your hours like you know actually communication it, it is interesting isn't it this is the first one of these uh these six interviews that i've done face to face the others i've done by by zoom uh and i can already feel the nuances be be different and i think it's you know zoom's great for for, for passing information on but it's a kind of blunt instrument zoom mm-hmm. or teams and it's hard to pick up those nuances of pride and hope and fear um uh, that, that you can see when you're you know talking to people um face to face but it, it will be interesting to see how 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 that movement settles uh, really let's let's move on to to question eight which is really about the kind of funding of the new economy um you know we've seen in the past governments control taxes and control currencies um there's a great emergence now in some of the cryptocurrencies that we're seeing um and you know we saw elon musk buy a billion pounds worth of uh, with cryptocurrency and then kind of change his mind a bit about that because uh, he was taking them for payment for Teslas and then he wasn't quite so sure. Do you think that this could be an opportunity, a kind of universal worldwide um, uh, opportunity to have uh, independence from from governments or, or is, is this the emperor's new clothes? I'm actually pro um, governments not being involved in, in crypto um, for many reasons. I think um, it's, an, it's a new way of trading and it's I think it's a lot more accessible um, as, as well to people who don't necessarily have that much wealth um, so I, for me personally I'm trying to learn more about it because I keep hearing conversations between men um, talking about um, kind of crypto and the investments and the money that they've made and then I just thought to myself I need to learn more about this because it's you know you download an app you you can get involved in the These are the people that are trading cryptocurrencies yes. rather than using it to yes, exactly. for, for, for everyday commerce. Exactly. Um, and um, exactly, some more kind of like private investments. Um, but I do think the fact that governments aren't that involved with it um, means that it can be a bit more democratic and a bit more accessible to all types of people. You don't think governments will think of it as a threat and shut it down or ban people from using it as they have done in China or are starting to do in China? I think they could, but I think it would be a mistake for the for the economy. I think you know, um, I, I think crypto is one of those things where you can actually, you know, anybody can get involved in it. And yes, there are threats, just like any just like any technology that comes out there. There is threats, and there are ways to kind of regulate it. But I, I do like the fact that it's not that regulated at the moment. It's the wild west. Now. Never mind COVID, never mind Brexit. Um, will climate change finish us all off? Yes. 
If we don't act now. Do you think we can act now? Do you think we're too late to act? What should we be doing? Um, I think... I think it is too late, but I don't think that doesn't mean that we shouldn't act. Um, I think we. I think it's uh, again, it's one of those things, just like DNI. It needs to be talked about, not just a tick box exercise. Because what baffles me is, and I think the younger generation perhaps get it a, a bit more. But what baffles me is that the earth that we're living on. I mean, there wouldn't be an economy without our most expensive commodity, which is planet Earth. And now we're seeing more and more evidence of everything that the scientists have been talking about for many, many years. Um, we're seeing a lot of fires. We're seeing a lot of floods in places that we've never seen before. Um, the temperatures have been hot. The weather has been weird. Um, and, you know, I, I just think how are we not acting on this already? And if people are kind of passionate about it or going out and, you know, um, like um, like Extinction Rebellion, for example, kind of going out in, in the streets and- Lying down causing, in the roads. Yes. I mean, I'm not, I'm not a fan of that um, approach because I think climate is about an education. Uh, but I do think um, people shouldn't be looked at as radical or extremists for actually taking matters in, in their own hand, like Greta personally going in and sitting and striking outside schools because it is a genuine threat to all of us. And it's sad to see, you know, when there are solutions and things that can be done. Um, I think what's frustrating for me is that governments will kind of pay lip service. And I think recently the government was kind of saying, oh, well, don't put your dishwasher on twice a day or something Meanwhile, like that. Meanwhile, governments are burning coal. Yes, and fossil fuel. And, and I just problems. think, gosh, like this is not... Um, this is not one. This is not a political game. It's it's serious. It it, it could end us all. Um, and I don't think it's necessarily ended us all in, in the sense of like the whole planet just you know exploding out, out of a sudden. But I think it's just you know the 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 slow death of the planet of that's destructing that's destructive to economies and and again it's people who can't afford to then rebuild their lives once they're affected by wildfires or floods or extreme weather they're the ones that are that are suffering um i just don't think that the governments take it seriously enough and and in talking to you today i've noticed a sort of blend really of optimism and, and hope uh, and change and and caution um and and should you choose in your own life to to have children uh, tasneen what advice do you think you'd give them um as they enter the business world uh, that would mean I would have to take my own advice first. But um, I um, um, many things because I think um, now I'm being much. I mean, hmm, I could write a book about this. Um, I think when I first started my career, I, I really didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, hence why I kind of just went into law. And I just for many years in my 20s, I just did not know what I wanted to do. And I would say in terms of academia as well, I was, you know, I was okay, but I wasn't kind of gifted academically in a way that I could, you know, just go and, and, and ace kind of um, lots of different jobs or degrees. So I really took that as a failure and I didn't know what I wanted to do. And I think I just riddled myself with anxiety during my 20s being like, what, what do I do? So I think my first advice would be, for someone kind of going into the business world is not to worry too much about it and 
things will eventually figure themselves out. Like work hard and do everything that you've committed to doing really well. Um, but don't worry about where you're going to be in five years time because you don't know. It's opportunities will come up as you start building your networks. Um, I went from law to recruitment to tech. Um, I would have never ever considered tech um, when I was at university. I didn't even know what it was. And I didn't ever consider a career in sales or client relationship. And yet here I am, but it just happened organically. And I just wish I wasn't so hard on myself. So don't stress, <laughs> work hard and be nice to people. Yeah, absolutely. And I think also don't be afraid to get out of toxic situations. There have been so many jobs in the past where I just, because because I was so worried about always kind of impressing everyone and, and doing that. I I stayed in jobs where I had, you know, terrible bosses that weren't particularly compassionate or weren't particularly nice. And I took all their criticism as kind of gospel and, and followed that. And I think if I was to give advice to my younger self or someone that was going into the into the business world now I'd say there is an element of self-reflection and taking constructive criticism but the minute it becomes toxic and it's just you know affecting you and your self-worth I think it's time to move on and there's no shame in that having the confidence to challenge things that are wrong good Tasnia Lowy thank you very much for answering all those 10 questions thank you very much coming to the studio cheerio thank you